0: Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Nice, good. So, meditation practice. Uh, I imagine that we're all drawn to meditation practice for a range of different reasons. Um, this particular path of Buddhist practice. Is designed to address the problem of human stress and suffering. That's its goal. Is to look closely at how and why we struggle in life and help us to understand more uh, how we get ourselves into trouble here and here and here in the heart, in the head, in the heart, and in our relationships. Um, and not just to make things more comfortable, but but actually to transform the basis from which we live our lives in such a way uh, that our lives have more meaning, uh, more joy, um, and more peace, and uh, a deep and genuine peace not not the kind of uh, peace that comes when things are going our way, which is nice, uh, but um, a more unconditional peace that we can access uh, even when everything goes south, so to speak. And uh, the world that we're living in today... Uh, as we 're all well aware uh, it 's a lot of suffering, a lot of stress, a lot of difficulty, and uh, tremendous changes happening uh, from the changes on the planet to the to our climate um, to political changes you know the the rise of nationalism here in this country and in europe um, the, the sort of extreme xenophobia and hate groups that are uh, finding uh, energy and uh, gathering momentum again in ways that uh, you know many many of us uh, seemed would not happen uh, so so one of the, what I'd like to explore tonight. Uh, is is how these teachings, which are often framed in terms of our own difficulties, and this practice, which seems very internal. You know, here we come together and say a few words, hi, welcome, and then we all sit together silently for 45 minutes with our eyes closed. You know, so it seems <laughs> very inward-focused, and uh, it seems very much uh, separate from our relationships with one another and with our community or our society. And so what I'd like to speak about and explore is what's the connection between those? You know, is this just about kind of making this place in our own mind a little bit less cluttered and crazy? Or does it have some bearing on the realities that we're living with today in uh, 2017, soon to be 18? So the way that uh, the teachings and the practice have been framed and taught here in the West in the last 40 years, um, particularly within the insight meditation tradition, has really centered around personal suffering, psychological and emotional healing, uh, with the view of liberation, with the view of uh, really discovering this kind of unconditional peace that I was speaking about, but very much from the perspective of the individual. And a lot of that has to do um, with the particular focus in the West on the individual, um, our, psych- our bent towards psychological understandings of things, as well as to a certain degree, the, uh, the social location of the teachers who brought these practices back, who were mostly white, middle class, and so had a very specific experience uh, defined by how they grew up and the communities they grew up in and the kinds of problems they did or didn't face. For me and the ways that I've been taught, and particularly from the monastic tradition, uh, it's really important to understand the individual the teachings on individual liberation within the cultural and historical context of ancient India and, the, and the, um, the space in which those teachings arose. So what we know of ancient India is that um, there were very strong community relationships and ties 2,600 years ago in the Indian subcontinent the sense of what an individual was was probably very different than the sense that we have today of what it means to be an individual. Uh, The connections to family were very strong. The connections to village and community were very strong. Uh, There was a cultural framework of duty to one's elders and family, to one's society. Um, the, The... Uh, religious context that was later known as Hinduism, which is a label given to the practices and religions of that area by Western colonialists. But that whole realm of religious practices um, had an arc of understanding one's one's path in life as being composed of different phases. And um, those phases involved... Uh, being connected to one's family, giving back to society, and then eventually moving into a place where one was devoted to spiritual awakening and uh, and cultivation uh, of inner peace after having really given and connected and served in many ways. So this is the framework out of which these teachings of enlightenment arise. And then you look at society today very different, right? What I'd like to suggest tonight and hopefully show you in different ways is that relationship rather than a sense of separation or or individuation is really at the heart of this practice and these teachings. And it's actually so woven through uh, the tradition that it's easy to miss because it's not stated explicitly because if you came from this culture, why would you need to state explicitly that relationship was important when it was the very context within which you were embedded and grew up in so just a few things I'll point to to begin with in the in the traditional uh, teachings um, First, the way that the the Buddha set up the whole community of practice was one uh, uh, of undeniable essential relationship. So those who were practicing these teachings intensively were renunciates, were monks and nuns who left their life of working and having a family, to devote themselves to studying and understanding something more profound about being human. But they weren't allowed to have money. They weren't allowed to grow food. They weren't allowed to store food. So if you can't grow food, you can't store food, you can't handle money, these were some of the rules that the Buddha set up for his community of practitioners. You're completely dependent on people who have money and food and clothes for staying alive. So right there in the very structure of the way the teachings were practiced is this symbiotic relationship between the lay community and the monks and nuns. The monks and nuns who were devoting their lives to meditation, spiritual cultivation, enlightenment couldn't just go off and disappear into a cave because they wouldn't have food. They would would starve. They needed to stay relatively close enough to a community so that they could go and beg for food, so that they could get medicine when they were sick, so they could get cloth for their robes. And so in turn the monastics would offer teachings to the lay community. They would teach them about the path. So right there in the very structure of the community, at the heart of its ability to survive, is this relationship of giving and receiving and connection. We usually, we think of a monk or a nun, someone devoted to enlightenment, and we think of them, right... Like uh, Amit was saying, off in a cave for 19 years on their own, not so. In traditional Buddhist countries, monks and nuns go on alms round every morning. They walk through the village with with their bowl, their alms bowl, to receive the food for the day's meal. Also central to the practice was living together in community and learning how to live together learning how to get along. This is a a quote from one of the early texts where the Buddha comes to some of his disciples uh, and he asks them, and he says, I hope that you're getting along well, that you're living with a sense of mutual appreciation without fighting. Getting along, the analogy he uses is blending like milk and water and viewing each other with kindness. And they say, yes, we are. And so the Buddha asks and says, how are you doing that? How are you managing to get along in this way with one another? And they say, we think like this. It's a gain for me. It's such a great gain for me that I'm living with such great friends on this path. We maintain bodily, verbal, and mental acts of loving kindness towards each other, both openly and privately. We're different in body, but the same in mind. That's how we're living together in friendship, with mutual appreciation, without conflict, blending like milk and water, and viewing each other through the eyes of kindness. So right there we have this lovely record Who knows what was actually said, but you get the feeling of it, right? Of the Buddha coming to his disciples and asking and saying, Hey, how's it going? You guys getting along? Everything all right? You know? No fighting? And they say, yeah, actually it's so great. Because we're living with a sense of gratitude for one another. We see that it's such a gift to have each other's support. And even though we're different in our bodies, we're one in mind. We share the same goal, the same values, the same intentions. And we, we say and do and think kind things about one another when we're together and even when we're apart. And so we're getting along really well. Another central aspect to the teachings is the uh, the practice of taking refuge, which is a whole other topic in and of itself. But at the heart of this Refuge is about finding something more reliable in life than the things we usually place our hopes on. A job, a relationship, our health, our finances. Things which are important and helpful, but which ultimately eventually fall apart and which can't be depended on. So a refuge is about finding something that's steadier, that's more reliable in our lives. The refuge in what the Buddha represents, which is the quality of awareness and wakefulness. The refuge in the path of practice, that there's actually a way of living that brings happiness and peace. Taking refuge in that, that as human beings, we have the possibility of learning to live more meaningful lives and taking refuge in the relationships we have with like-minded people who share that goal, that intention to live a life that's devoted to kindness and compassion and honesty and wisdom. So refuge itself is about situating ourselves in a kind of relationship, in a relationship with life that's defined by certain values, aspirations, and relationships. Many of you have certainly heard of the Eightfold Path, which is one way that the Buddha summarized his teachings, this path to living a more meaningful life. And so the first step in that path is about how we understand ourselves in the world it's called right view or right understanding and this is about having a certain perspective a certain way of looking at things that uh, helps us be pointed in the right direction in a direction towards more well-being and happiness because if we're looking at things from a different from from a perspective depending on let's start that sentence again depending on how we're looking at things we're going to go in different directions right so if you weren't from new york and you wanted to uh you wanted to get uh down to the southern end of the island and you didn't know the way the numbers on the streets went and you started going up on the numbers you would not arrive at the southern end of the island because you didn't have the right understanding you weren't looking at things in the right way so in the same way if our goal is this sense of deeper, more abiding happiness and peace and meaning, it's important to look at things in a way that's conducive to that. So the Buddha said there are two causes for having this accurate understanding. The first, he said, is our own careful attention really studying things closely really looking deeply at our experience which is part of what we do in meditation practice we look at our own mind at our thoughts at our emotions at our feelings at our body and try to understand what's going on here how's this working you know it's just a siren why am i getting so annoyed it's just the sound of the rain why am i thinking about you know how i'm going to get home and just be here starting to understand the process of the way the mind and the heart works. So this is the internal cause for the arising of right view, our own careful attention. The external cause is what's known as noble friendship or wise companions. So it's it's through meeting people who can... Help us understand things. Who can reflect back to us the way we're seeing things and offer other perspectives that we develop a wiser understanding, a right view of things. The Buddha said that just uh, just as the dawn is the precursor to the rising of the sun, so having a good friend is the precursor to awakening. One who has a good friend cultivates the eightfold path. And by good friend, he means this particular quality of friendship, of of having a wise spiritual companion. So again, right there, this quality of relationship. I'm going to tell another another short story from uh, from the texts. So the Buddha is spending some time with his disciples, and the story goes that... um, He's talking about giving instructions and how to listen to the advice and the instructions he gives. And he says, there are four kinds of horses when you're training horses. There's the first kind of horse uh, responds to instructions quickly and easily, just when they're given, right away. They hear the instructions and the horse understands and responds. Is the next kind of horse only responds to the instructions in the shadow of the whip. So the, the, the charioteer has to actually sort of show the horse the whip, a violent image, in order for the horse to, to heed the instructions. This is the second kind of horse. Then the third kind of horse only responds to the instructions at the, at the, the blow of the charioteer only you know when really uh, sort of forceful giving instructions forcefully and the disciple says what's the fourth kind of horse the Buddha says the fourth kind of horse can't take any instructions at all so they kill kill the fourth horse and the disciples say well aren't you talking about giving instructions to your disciples the Buddha says yes and they say well what do you mean you kill the disciple like you're a buddha you don't kill people right the buddha says yes but for the person who can't hear instructions who can't listen and understand instructions we stop giving them feedback we stop giving them instructions and that is the equivalent of of death why is that the equivalent of death If no one's going to tell us, if no one's going to give us feedback, if no one's going to offer us instructions or try to help us learn, how are we ever going to learn? If no one's willing, if people try to get through and say, hey, you should look at this, or hey, this wasn't so good, I think you maybe might want to think about doing that differently, or, you know, this really hurt, when you said that, when you did that. What happens when people give up? When they say, ah, forget it, they'll never listen. What happens to that person? They die. They die in the sense that their spiritual growth stops, their learning stops, because they're no longer getting feedback. See, we can't see our own blind spots. That's the definition of a blind spot. Only someone else can see it and show it to us. So there's only so much we can learn on our own. We need that reflection from other people to help us see the things that we can't see. And if that stops ever, then our, our, our learning, our growth is going to be limited. So if we take these teachings and we take it out of this context, this context of being in dependence on others for our recognizing our dependence on others for our survival, which is no different today. We think we're independent, but it's just money that masks that. Every single thing we use every day is coming to us from other people, from the labors of others, countless others. But if we take these teachings and we take them out of the context of a society that's based on giving and receiving, where that's clear, out of a relationship of learning through friendship, Uh, it's very easy for meditation practice or the idea of awakening to end up reinforcing the sense of hyper-individualism that we have here in contemporary Western society. and actually increasing the sense of alienation or separation. That's, that's so endemic today. So like I know for myself, when I first started meditating, that's what happened. Not, not at the very beginning, but within the first few years, as, my, as, as I practiced more and as my awareness got more heightened, my sensory awareness, my emotional awareness, I just got drawn into myself more and the sense of isolation actually increased. I felt more alone, more disconnected, more isolated, more trapped in my own thoughts and my own emotions. It took a lot of work and a lot of different ways to start to rediscover the capacity for healthy relationship and to start to, to understand that the meditation practice wasn't just about going inside or disappearing in some way. It's pretty rare to get together like this, I think. We used to do it a lot thousands of years ago. Human beings used to spend a lot of time sitting together around the fire, telling stories, singing songs. And our biology still expects that. Everything in our uh, evolution is expecting us to know the people that we're living with around us, to have a shared story about where we come from and why we're here, and to have strong relationships and to stay in touch in those relationships. So think back to a time in your life where you felt happy and connected. And I would bet that part of that experience was being around other people who you felt safe and connected to. I know it is for me when I think back to the times in my life that were, you know, like peak experiences. It's being connected to a group of friends or a sense of family where there's a feeling of belonging and connection and place. Um, one of my teachers uh, who travels around the world a lot and teaches told, told us this story about um, he was teaching in Africa. Unfortunately, I don't remember where. But one of the uh, one of the women on the retreat worked in the local village, and uh, she told a story about working with the children, and uh, in the village and asking them to draw. She said to draw a picture of where you live. So, if you asked any one of us or a child in the United States to draw a picture of where they live, what would you expect them to draw? What would you expect? A house, what else? An apartment, right? Their their dwelling place. So you know what they drew? They drew their village. The sense of identity, the sense of location was not limited to just this one room or this one building. It's like, this is where I live. Right? That's where my aunt lives and that's where my grandma lives and this is where the the other children I play with live and this is where we go to the stream and do this. So that sense of a connection, of, of belonging. So I think one of the important shifts that I know I'm in the process of making in my own life, in my own practice and many of my colleagues are also examining is How to recognize and understand that the stress and the suffering that we experience is not just individual, it's contextual. We can't separate ourselves from the society and the culture that we live in. And so many of the problems that we experience that we think are our fault or our problem. Whether it's depression or isolation or loneliness or fear, or apathy or a sense of meaninglessness or despair—is is this sounding familiar at all? You know, these kinds of right, and it's you know there's joy in life absolutely, and thank God, um, but we take these things so personally, not recognizing that. Like, look around, you know, what kind of a society are we living in? What are the values of this society? Where's the value for compassion? Where's the value for honesty? Where's the value for mastery, for having a craft, for knowing something well? Where's the, where's the value for generosity and contributing rather than hoarding and accumulating and amassing wealth? Right? Where's the sense of meaning? Where's the sense of uh, um, working together towards a, a shared goal? That transcends the individual. That's about something greater than just me and my life. You know, everything in this culture is the is going in the opposite direction. Because it's driven by the economy. So this is one of the roles, as dangerous as organized religion can be, and as abused as it can be, in its. From, from my perspective in its uh, true form this is one of the roles of religion is to help us remember our humanity and to remember the things that actually do bring meaning to life so our suffering is not just individual it's relational and it's collective it's communal and it's even broader than that it's, it's, it's planetary at this point the predicament that we're facing. So, if this practice is to stay relevant in our lives, if it's not just, you know, about making ourselves feel a little bit more comfortable or a little bit less stressed, it needs to take this into account and really look closely at it. So, you know, the difficulties we experience individually are clear. I don't, I don't need to speak about those. And those are both, both the kind of personal challenges we face, but also the more universal challenges that we face of getting sick, of growing old, of being mortal, of not being able to control our lives, ultimately, not being able to control what happens. And the stress, the difficulty of that is very, you know, what's it like to sit here for 45 minutes in silence? Is that a generally peaceful experience? Maybe there are moments, hopefully, but just even listening to the traffic and the rain, right? The mind fights, it struggles. Why? Because we're not in control. And we haven't learned to really be at peace with that. How much of our our suffering and stress in life arises from relationships, in relationships? So you know you know the old joke about our families, why our families can push our buttons so well? Because they installed them, right? <laughs> they put them there. That's why they know how to push them so well. So we just had Thanksgiving and the Hanukkah, Christmas holidays are coming up. So, you know, next time you're with your family and they're driving you nuts. Of course they're driving you nuts. That's That's... That, the, the very things that make you feel nuts came about because of the family we grew up in. So it's bound to do that. So that's graduate school for, for spiritual practice, being with family. But the reality is that the, the kinds of wounds that were created in relationship, those often need to be healed in relationship. So we can sit all we want and look at our minds, and a lot of things can get worked out, but certain things heal a lot faster when we can deal with them with another person, when we can bring our practice into our life and really include the difficulties that come up as part of this path to understand and transform our lives and our hearts. So the misunderstanding that comes a lot is that this meditation practice is about cutting ourselves off. Or, right, it's about kind of disappearing into something. Disappearing into bliss or all of your thoughts finally stopping and kind of dissolving into this state of oneness or nothingness. I was at the uh, monastery in England training Quite a few years ago, and there was this um, man from uh, another country in Europe, the monasteries in England, um, who did not like me <laughs> he just he really hated me there were some some very uh very strong cultural differences anything that I did, he interpreted not in the way it was intended, and we were working together in the kitchen and so you know, me being who who I am and being an American, I would kind of you know say, "Well, like, let's can we talk about this? You know, like, what's going on? Why are you angry?" And and that obviously made it worse. And uh, at one point, he said to me, "He said, I didn't come here to have to deal with you and deal with any of this. I came here to disappear into into myself." And I said, "Wow, wow, you know." I understood in that moment why he had so much difficulty. He suffered so much. Whenever anything came up that was the slightest bit difficult, because he had walled himself off and defined the meditation practice and the path as just being about what happens in his own mind when he's silent. And everything else was, was a distraction or an obstacle. So that's a very limited existence, Right? So the next time you're meditating and you hear the neighbor's dog barking or you hear a siren going off or your roommate turning on the blender or whatever and something inside is going, God, why don't they shut up? Take a look at that. Are we in control? What is this teaching us? about our own mind, about our preferences, about our expectations or ideas. So mindfulness practice is about being in relationship, not about cutting off from a relationship. It's actually about entering our lives more fully, more deeply, experiencing what it is to be alive. So... Some of the words that are used to, dis- to teach mindfulness, like watch your breath or observe your thoughts, can be very misleading. Because what's it like to watch something, to observe something? We're separate from it, right? There's that distance. What happens if instead of watch your breath, the instruction is feel your breath? What happens if instead of notice sounds, the instruction is receive sounds? So there's an intimacy. It's about feeling the experience from the inside. So life itself, the experience of being alive, if we look at it, is an experience of being in relationship. I'll say that again. Life itself is an experience of being in relationship. We are in relationship with ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions. We're in relationship with one another. We're in relationship with our environment. And the question, the central question of meditation practice is what. What What is that relationship characterized by? How are we in relationship? Are we in relationship with a sense of self-centeredness or, or greed or aggressiveness? So the qualities that we learn and the qualities that are... Um, Cultivated on this path, are are about bringing that, bringing into that relationship, first a sense of nonviolence, a spirit of non-harming, to say that life is fragile and uncertain and vulnerable. Let me live with a sense of care. Let me try to not harm myself or others. And this is about having a having a conscience and a sense of care and concern for the well-being of ourselves and others and other living creatures. It's about bringing qualities of love and compassion and celebration and joy to that relationship with ourselves, with others, and with, with the world and the environment. About bringing qualities of generosity or patience or service So the meditation practice helps us to cultivate these qualities, qualities of nonviolence, of care, of compassion, of honesty, of generosity. And then those inform our actions and our relationships. And then the more we act in the world in these ways, the more we live from that place, that feeds back into the meditation practice itself, the formal meditation practice. So the two start to support each other. What's happening in, the, in our own mind when we meditate and how we cultivate our minds, and the way that we live. They, start to, they mirror each other. So the way that you are with a sound, or a thought, or a sensation, in that moment we're training our mind to bring certain qualities to relationship. Qualities of patience, Wisdom, care, compassion, generosity, non-reacti- non-reactivity. And so that then when you're standing in the break room with a colleague and they say something that gets you going, you don't snap right away. There's that capacity to actually pause because you've trained the mind how to be with experience in this particular way this is making sense great and all of these qualities that we can cultivate this whole range of ways that we can be with experience begins with mindfulness so mindfulness is the basis for cultivating this particular way of being with experience it's the basis for developing everything else why because if we're not if we're not aware Game over. If we're not even aware, then we're just running on, on habit and on automatic. We're on autopilot. As soon as we're aware, then we have the 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 possibility of seeing what the mind is doing, of noticing, oh look at that. I'm totally judging myself. Or how? Oh, you know, I'm really hating the sound of the rain on the air conditioner. My mind is filled with hatred in this moment. If we're not mindful, we don't see that and we're just reinforcing hatred. So there's another story in the suttas, in the early texts that I want to tell you that really drives home the role of relationship and practice. It's the story of a Uh, of an apprentice and a master acrobat working in a circus and earning their living doing acrobatics. And so the master says to the apprentice, they do this act where the apprentice, who's younger, probably a child, and much lighter, climbs up this pole and then stands on top of the master's shoulders, and they do this balancing act on this pole. And so the master says to the apprentice, I'll I'll take care of you and watch out for you, and you watch out for me, and in that way, we'll stay in balance and earn our living. And the apprentice says, that sounds crazy. No, no, no. You take care of yourself. Make sure that you're stable and I'll take care of myself and make sure that I'm stable and then we'll be all good. We'll perform the act and we'll earn our living. So the Buddha then interprets this and says, you know, which is who's right? And he says, actually, they're both right. We look after ourself by looking after others and we look after others by looking after ourself. And then he goes on to explain what he means. He says, how do we look after other people? By taking care of ourselves, So how is taking care of ourselves contributing and taking care of others? Important question, yeah? If you're interested in meditating, cultivating your heart, it's not just about me, right? He says, well, by practicing mindfulness. When we're, we're responsible for our own inner balance, for our own well-being. Mindfulness helps us to stay in balance, to actually be at ease. If, If we're not okay, how can we help anyone? If we're strung out, overwhelmed, how can we be of service? So, a very famous uh, Jewish rabbi from the uh, uh, turn a, the, from uh, like 80 BC into AD, Hillel said, "If I am not for myself, who will be for me? Who's gonna value you if you don't value yourself?" So this is the way, by taking care of ourselves, we take care of others. It has to start here, right? And then the Buddha asks, how do you look after yourself by looking after others? And he says, by practicing patience, non-harming, kindness, and caring for others. So, When we live with patience and nonviolence and kindness and compassion towards others, we're taking care of ourselves because the experience of living in that way is peaceful, is enriching, is rewarding. So going back to Hillel, so he says, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? Right? So if I don't take care of me, who's going to take care of me? And then he says, if I am only for myself, what am I? Right? If it's, it's not just about us, if we only take care of ourselves, then what are we? It has to, it has to express itself and come outward. So developing this relationship, understanding life as an experience of relationship, One of my first teachers in India, a man by the name of Manindraji, we were um, spending time together once many years ago, and standing uh, on this wall on the edge of a, uh, of a field, and there was uh, all kinds of trash in India, littered on the on the ground, lots of lots of trash, and. I was I was saying to him I was saying it's so sad to see you know all the all the garbage on the on the ground and uh and his response was he said what's outside is a reflection of what's inside the pollution that's outside is because of the pollution in our own mind when our mind isn't clear we, 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 we end up harming and polluting the world around us. There's a very deep understanding about the relationship between our minds and our hearts and the world around us. There's a um, Cambodian monk uh, by the name of Mahagosananda, many of you have probably heard of. He was known as the Gandhi of Cambodia. So during the time of Pol Pot and uh, the... Uh, Terrible genocide in in Cambodia. Uh, he would go on peace walks, and he would he would he would walk with monks and villagers uh, uh, through through the villages and through the fields um, for peace. And so he came uh, to a conference in the United States, um, a demonstration and conference in Washington D.C. Uh, uh, to try to make landmines illegal in war. And he, was, uh, he gave a speech, and he said in the speech, he said, the landmines and the anti-personnel mines in the ground started in our hearts. If we want to remove the landmines and the anti-personnel mines in the ground we must first remove the landmines in our hearts. So life is an experience of being in relationship, and this practice is about starting to become aware of experience itself as a relationship. Our mind is always knowing something. Awareness is always connected With a certain experience, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, thinking. There's the experience of something being known a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought, an emotion. So that's contact, that's relationship. What are the qualities in that relationship? And the goal of this practice is to liberate the mind from getting entangled in that relationship, getting entangled in that relationship with confusion, with self-centeredness and greed, or with hatred and aversion. And instead, being able to be in relationship with the world to allow experience to touch us At the eye, at the nose, at the ear, at the tongue, at the body, at the mind, at the heart. And stay balanced. Stay aware and balanced without moving into reactivity. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, whatever comes, for that relationship, for that meeting to be characterized by wisdom, by clear seeing. This is what's happening in this moment. And it's impermanent, it's changing. And it's not personal. The sound is not personal, the thought is not personal, the sensation is not personal. Characterized by wisdom and characterized by compassion and love, a sense of care and nonviolence. And the more we do that, the more we look closely at experience and start to see it clearly the more the practice reveals that the sense of self that we have, this, this sense of being a separate person here, trapped in this body, is actually an illusion. It's constructed. It's not independent. We think that there's someone, a person, who's in relationship with life, with other people. But it's the other way around. Because there is a relationship, a person arises. Self and other only exist in relation to each other. Because there is relationship, then there's a sense of being someone. This whole life is an experience of two things meeting. And what's, what's that characterized by? What are we bringing to the moment? So when we sit, when we calm the mind, we look closely at our moment-to-moment experience of a sound, of the breath, of a thought, and study how is the mind relating to life. And then slowly, over time, the mind learns a different relationship. And then our duty is to take that out, that that informs the choices that we make, the ways that we relate. So the last, this quote from Hillel, if I am not for myself, Who will be for me? If I am only for myself, what am I? And then his third question, if not now, when? So the time to help others or to give back isn't at some point in the future when we're enlightened. The the practice expresses itself every moment in how we relate to life in how we speak with one another, in the choices we make about what we do with our time and our energy? Is it serving something greater than ourselves? So I want to end with a quote. This is from Antoine de saint exupery who wrote The Little Prince. It's from another book of his called Wind, Sand, and Stars. And it's about this relationship. It's about how to develop this relationship that I've been speaking about tonight. So he writes, Old friends cannot be created out of hand. Nothing can match the treasure of common memories of trials endured together Of quarrels and reconciliations and generous emotions. It is idle, having planted an acorn in the morning, to expect that afternoon to sit in the shade of an oak. So it takes time. It takes time to develop a relationship. So, thanks so much for your kind attention.